Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Our guest today is a world-famous experimental psychologist, neuroscience-inspired, multi-sensory guru, professor of University of Oxford, Charles Spence. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. Nice to be here. Charles, within your field, you're a person of many interests. Could you please tell our guests a little bit more about your background and the share breadth of research work you do? So I'm an experimental psychologist by background, uh, working here at Oxford University, where I've been for about a quarter of a century now. Um, psychologist interested in the senses, how we hear and see and touch and taste and smell, um, and with a particular interest in trying to apply uh, the latest insights and understandings from psychology and neuroscience about how the senses connect one with another to the design of everyday things. Uh, which over the years has taken me um, through design of warning signals that more effectively capture a driver's attention through paint colours that make people more productive. Um, and in the last uh, 15, 20 years, increasingly in the world of food and drink experience design, not making dishes and drinks as such, but thinking about how uh, everything around what you eat and drink affects us from the sound of the packaging to the sound of crunch to the sound of the music um, and how uh, uh, those sort of atmospheric product extrinsic cues can, just how they affect us in the first place and then how they can be modified and designed in order to uh, deliver specific uh, outcomes often these days mediated through uh, technology. Because it's a audio-focused podcast, um, I'd like to dive straight into uh, one of the most intriguing topics we're going to be talking about, the sonic seasoning. Charles, what is sonic seasoning? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a name for um, a kind of phenomenon that we've discovered over the last uh, decade or so. I think it took, took us until 2017 to actually come up with the name sonic seasoning. Um, but uh, it refers to the fact that it's possible now to change the taste of food and drink uh, simply by changing uh, what we listen to. Now, it's been a long uh, sort of history of you know music in restaurants and bars and how uh, if you up the tempo, people may drink faster, may drink more, may spend more. So clearly uh, the musical beat can influence our behaviour. But the Sonic Seasoning is specifically about our taste experience, our flavour experiences. Um, and uh, we've been doing now a little over 10 years' work um, showing these sort of surprising connections between tastes and flavours, things like sweet and sour and bitter and salty and umami and creamy and spicy and particular sonic qualities of uh, pitch or tempo or roughness or ambitus or all sorts of other things I don't really necessarily understand as a non-auditory expert. But working with uh, sound designers and composers, DJs even, uh, we've been able to uh, first assess what sounds do people think of when they think of something sweet or they taste something sweet, then uh, pick music off the shelf uh, or else deliberately compose soundscapes or musical tracks in order to convey those properties. Uh, so sweetness tends to be high pitch, um, tends to be a tinkling piano rather than a low pitched bass sound. 
and by finding or creating music that matches the tastes or the flavours that we know and are familiar with, it then turns out possible we can actually change the taste of what you are eating and drinking. Not in a way that I could turn water into wine if I got the music right, but in the way that if I give you something that is kind of bittersweet to begin with, say a cup of black coffee that's been slightly sweetened, some medium dark chocolate that has both bitterness and sweetness in it, then by playing the sweet music, I can accentuate the sweet notes in what you're tasting. By uh, playing low-pitched brassy sounds, rougher sounds, I can bring out the bitterness in what you're tasting. Uh, And hence, you sound much like the salt shaker or the pepper grinder uh, to season your food, uh, but do it through your ears rather than through your taste buds. As a sound designer myself, this topic just drives my curiosity as nothing else. When I was looking into the experience you've done on food tasting, and you've mentioned a lot of examples already, combining sonic stimuli with various kind of um, situations um, and types of food, etc. Examples including, you know, spectators reporting a freshness and crunchiness of an apple with the high frequency content enhancements or playing the sound of the sea and crushing waves when serving oysters or fish. No doubt the effect is very powerful, but what is it at the very core of this phenomena? Can we already speculate and agree on some universally accepted truths and findings or perhaps some key differences or we're just scratching the surface? So um, I think it's probably important to um, kind of separate out. Uh, There are actually, on the one hand, sound is a forgotten flavour sense. When people think about what they're tasting, they think about what's going on on their tongue, gustation or taste as we call it, then what's going on in their nose, maybe the sight of food, maybe the feel or the texture. And sound is kind of the last thing that anyone uh, really thinks about um, when they think about what they enjoy and what drives their uh, tasting experiences. And yet that doesn't mean it's not important, but the way that sound can affect us, the way that what we hear can affect what we taste and how much we enjoy it, probably operates at a number of different levels. And in my own research, I can start it out back in 2003 with my uh, postdoc, Max Zampini, with the Sonic Chip, which was our first foray into sound and food, where we were taking an illusion we'd been working on in the lab, in the science lab, where we could make things feel rougher or softer. Your own hands, for example, or because we were being funded by Unilever, it was actually the sound of the clothing you were wearing. Could we make your clothing sound softer um, and hence feel softer? Uh, this is the parchment skin illusion. You can do that very easily. Uh, we thought, well, why not apply that to food? Um, and that became the sonic chip where we could show that we could add about 15% freshness or crunchiness to a potato chip simply by boosting the high-frequency components. Um, and in that case, you're sort of boosting the sound of the food itself. Um, and that's one way in which uh, what we hear can affect tasting, making things crunchier or seem softer and soggier. Uh, and the fact is most of us like crunchy, noisy foods Then we kind of went on from that to think about the sound of packaging. Why do crisps come in such noisy, rattly packets? And again, showed if you play a noisier, rattlier crisp packet, people say the crisps taste crunchier too. Uh, And then from there, moving out from the sound of the food to the sound of the packaging, then to the sound um, of the place. And that got us to the sound of the sea experiment, modulating the pleasantness, but not the saltiness of oysters. And there, maybe in that case, what you hear is affecting, I think, people in a number of ways, it's probably triggering nostalgia that many of us, uh, at least here in the UK, would have fond childhood memories of the seaside. So it sort of triggers an emotional thing. Uh, that nostalgia can affect 
through emotion or enjoyment. Uh, also, as it's done in the restaurant, uh, and I've seen this time and again, you have diners who are very happy to be at this fancy restaurant who can't stop talking, who aren't concentrating on the food. But at the moment at which they put the headphones on, or the earbuds in, I should say, suddenly there's silence. And so we're kind of using sound in that case to cut the conversation. And then people are sort of mindfully focusing on the food for a few minutes. And it's that focusing in, attending to what you're tasting, that I think is a key part of what makes the dish work so well. And in that case, it was really surprising at the time in 2007 when we first did the Sound of the Sea type experiment with Heston Blumenthal, the chef, in Science Oxford in London, in Oxford with about 120 people. Um, we never thought it would work. The ambient sounds would change the taste of food. Why should they? Uh, but it did, um, and that has gone on to be a, sort of a, uh, the signature dish at one of the world's top restaurants now, the Sound of the Sea uh, seafood dish. Um, but a few years after that, people started saying, well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? And what else did you expect would happen, that seaside sounds make seafood taste better? Since then, that kind of got us into the real... Uh, the sonic seasoning effects, which are much more surprising because it's not the sound of the place where that ingredient grew or occurs or is found. It's not the sound of the food itself or its packaging. It's just kind of unrelated ambient sounds of music in the background. And yet they too can affect taste. And if you, so if you think just about that sonic seasoning element, just using seemingly unrelated music or soundscapes to affect taste, uh, there I think we are... After 11 years' research now from people all over the world, uh, a lot of psychologists, neuroscientists, but now increasingly designers, composers, brands, uh, marketers are all really interested in in the sonic seasoning. Um, uh, what, given how much research has been generated, we're now at a better understanding that this is a real phenomenon. When we first discovered it in 2010, it was like um, with my student Anne Sylvie Crisinel, this can't possibly work. Uh, and even if it did work, even if we could show that music changes the taste of food, who would be interested? And surely it wouldn't be, you know, robust and reliable. Well, 10 years on, it's a, sort of a huge and growing phenomenon. And I think in this case of music affecting taste, again, there are probably multiple mechanisms at, at, at play. On the one hand, I think uh, there's what we call sort of sensation transfer, which is the more you like what you listen to, the more you like whatever else you're doing. The more you like the product, the more you like the taste. And hence, liked music makes you like food more. Um, so that's kind of a, a hedonic or emotional transfer, we might call it. Uh, then on top of that, there's much, something much more targeted. There's a real interest to us, which is that we can boost or suppress specific tastes. Um, so I can accentuate the sweetness or the bitterness or the sourness or the spiciness. Um, and, and in this case, how do you use music to accentuate a specific taste? There, I think... Uh, it's probably partly around emotion again, that probably bitter tastes are bad, are potentially dangerous and poisonous. So maybe we match them with sounds that are bad, potentially dangerous. Um, whereas sweet tastes are good, they're round, they're nice, they're cuddly, they're nutritious. Um, and hence we match them with liked sounds. So it's kind of a hedonic matching there. But beyond that, I think there's also a sense in which our brains kind of pick up just the statistics of the environment. And so we all learn that fruits go from green and sour to red and ripe and sweet. Uh, and hence we, then we, we learn this association that red is sweet, pink and red are sweet. That's a useful statistics. It tells us which fruits to buy, which fruits to eat, which ones to avoid. But our brain can't tell which statistics of the environment are useful and which are useless. And if you look at newborn babies, be they chimpanzees, rats, or humans, 
All species stick their tongues out and up if you give them a sweet taste at birth to lick to ingest their calories they need for growth. All of those species and others will stick their tongues out and down if you give them a bitter taste because that's potentially poisonous, best to be avoided. And if you think about the sorts of sounds you might make with your tongue out and down or out and up, they're kind of different, maybe different in pitch. That's a statistic of the world. We're all born doing it. Our brain picks it up, internalizes it. It's useless for us to know that, I think. But um, we can study it in the lab, pick up these correlations, and then play them back through pre-recorded or specially created soundscapes. Uh, if we play then the high-pitched music, high-pitched sounds, uh, to bring out sweet taste, play the low-pitched sounds, like the sounds you might make at birth with a bitter taste. Um, and then, uh, that, as if that wasn't enough, um, I think there's also a sense in which the tastes and flavours, that they have... Sounds, yes, they have instruments associated them with them, timbres, they have pitch, they have roughness, they have uh, mode, uh, major or minor, all sorts of associations. Um, and, and all of those associations can't be explained just by saying liked tastes go with liked sounds, um, what do we do at birth? So beyond that, I think there's a sense in which um, when we describe, if I gave you a taste experience like sweet, sour, bitter, salty, all equi-intense, and ask you to describe just what happened. How was your experience of the taste? Even those those basic tastes were the same. The sweetness would come on gradually and linger and, and, and fade gradually. Sourness would come on suddenly and disappear. Uh, and I think there's a sort of sense in which there's like an analogy. You can, if you translate that temporal profile of how a taste affects us um, into an auditory domain, you might say then, okay, that makes predictions about what sorts of sounds ought to be consistent with with what you're um, tasting or with what you're smelling. So these these things are still being worked out, uh, the details, um, but it's clear now that uh, for many taste experiences, we can modify them by playing the associated sonic qualities. We can modify them by also showing the, the associated shapes, that sweet is round, uh, bitter, sour, salty, or angular shapes. Uh, we can modify these tastes by showing the associated colours, because sour is yellow and green, pink and white and red are sweet, and so on and so forth. So by combining all these sensory cues, these surprising connections between what we taste, what we hear, what we see, what we feel, we can then um, modify uh, people's tasting experiences in a way that I think is surprising to, to all of us. You know, Why on earth would music change the taste of food? That makes no sense at all. What is the connection here? It's it's almost synesthetic, I think. Synesthesia being that kind of condition where people um, uh, report that uh, the days of the week have different colours. Uh, you know, Monday's blue and Tuesday's green and uh, and so on. Um, but that sort of synesthesia is very rare. It's been, a, a, I think, a, a powerful creative force for composers over the centuries, but not in a good way, I think. Whereas what we're studying is, I want to call... Uh, Sonic seasoning, which is an example of the cross-modal correspondences, these surprising connections that we all share between different senses, between tastes and colours and shapes. Uh, and these shared associations are surprising like synesthesia is. I never thought sweet was round, but now you mention it, of course it is. I never thought that sweet was high pitch, but yep, it makes sense, it's intuitive. Um, uh, and by, 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 by building on these shared correspondences, that allows the designer, the sound designer, or any other kind of designer then, to actually create content that is meaningful to the masses and not just to that one idiosyncratic synesthete who happens to see and experience the world in their very peculiar uh, way. So that's really the power here. 
Um, and I think uh, when I try and explain it to people, sorry, this is a long, long answer to a short question. I think when I try and explain it to people, I say it's a bit like, uh, you know, if you've been to a wine tasting and the person leading it says, oh, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you smell the eucalyptus, you get the cat's piss. And so I couldn't smell those things a moment ago, but as soon as he said it, there they are in my experience. So there's kind of a priming going on in the wine tasting case. You can also make people taste things by leading them or priming them with taste words. And this is a kind of priming, perhaps, but by sound more. Because if I know that sweet is the same as round, is the same as high pitch, I can play those high pitch sounds and it sort of primes you without you really realising what's going on um, to bring out by kind of focusing your attention in on something that you're tasting. It's absolutely fascinating. And what it shows that there's an incredible depth in all this and uh, we can't cover it with one short answer because it taps into our experiences, our kind of environment, maybe our culture, even our evolution, even our DNA and anatomy and so on and so forth. And perhaps if anybody's listening to it, that one message we can take away from this conversation is that when we're working with these parameters, we need to deploy them intelligently and almost kind of approach it in a bespoke fashion. Every scenario, every project, every brand campaign, every kind of idea needs to be approached uh, from scratch and looked at in a kind of holistic fashion. That's right. Um, and I think what uh, from, from our starting point on sonic seasoning in 2009, 2010, when we didn't believe this was a real phenomenon, how could it be? Uh, and even if it was, who'd care? And uh, surely it wouldn't be robust. Uh, as years have gone by, more and more people got interested, um, both because it's such a surprising phenomenon. And it's kind of something that I can't, uh, it's not like something I can guarantee 100% of people will get every time. But I know from so many experiments with so many thousands of people now, a majority of people will get much of the time. I mean, on the one hand, it's just curious, why do we do, why do we have this? Why does music affect us this way? It throws up a question that I think everyone's sort of interested in. Um, and what is music of sweetness or sour or creamy or spicy? Uh, it, it introduces a challenge or a constraint for sound designers, for marketeers and so on, uh, when they're trying to think about what music might match a particular product, flavour or campaign. Then maybe traditionally that's been done based on intuition. And here it feels like the science can offer some insights, some constraints that do not tell that do not stop the, the the designer or the creative from making something new, original and desirable, but provide some insights about what might work better than other things. And so a lot of our work over the last few years has been working with uh, brand designers, agencies and so on, um, trying then to feed the scientific results in to these various creatives such that they can create something that people, that engages people, uh, that is pleasant to listen to, hopefully, um, and... Ideally, we'll kind of go back and forth because the creative, uh, the sound designer may make a sound for a particular flavor or product based on our research, but then they'll introduce something new. They'll add some other elements in, inevitably. Their creative juices will come out, and that might take you even closer to the perfect sound of that product, or it might take you away. So ideally, we try and sort of iterate the process where we say... This product has these flavors and tastes, therefore we think these sort of sound qualities, like a musical menu, is what you're after. They go away and create or source the right sort of thing. Uh, and then we try and take their, their their kind of creations or their selections and test whether they've got it just right. Um, and um, in a way, that sort of helps. I mean, ideally, you should keep doing that iteratively. And of course, the way that many campaigns run, there's not enough time, there's not enough budget. 
Uh, we need it yesterday, not <laughs> next year. And hence that kind of process can be um, abbreviated, sometimes perhaps more than it should be. So I'm sort of worried at one level that could people lose interest in this phenomenon of sonic seasoning if they have come across too many examples that talk the talk but aren't built on the sound principles. Um, and they say, oh, that, that wasn't sweet music. It didn't do anything to me. Uh, but if they'd had a real, a good, a well-grounded kind of experience, maybe it would have been better. That's one sort of slight worry. Uh, I see that the, that the public at large are, are hugely interested in, of course, experiential events, experiential marketing, um, and in new ways of connecting their senses, be it you know wine tastings with music, which you did with the London Symphony Orchestra or a quartet thereof, chocolates with uh, another London orchestra, uh, uh, Krug Champagne, another one who's done you know, events between tastes of tequila cuvées and music, uh, a lot of work with beers and spirits brands, and there's huge interest and huge enjoyment in experiencing some of these amazing ways that our senses are connected and that can affect us, um, uh, and ultimately that you know, maybe part of the of the of the job for us is to then take the various creations of designers, composers, you know. Uh, uh, design school students, uh, whoever it might be, throw all of their kind of sonic seasoning attempts into the mix and see which one is the the, the, the perfect example of sweetness. Um, and when we did that in the Science Museum in London, we had about 27 different tracks from seven composers and designers and so on. About seven or eight different sweet tracks, and we could find one of those sweet tracks that was much better, that more people said, yes, that really is sweet, than the other seven and then analyze sonically what was special about that track. And so, for example, in our bitter track, it found, we found out that, you know, that of all the bitter tracks that have been created, it really is the lowest in pitch is the one that people think most bitter. So that is kind of a, a key indicator, association with bitterness. And hence this sort of, you know, creative back and forth, I think is, is uh, both throws up challenges for fear that this sort of uh, area will get overextended and, um, uh, but at the same time also uh, feeds into the mix to say, what are the ultimate auditory parameters that we're looking for? Do they apply cross-culturally? You mentioned culture earlier and one might worry that maybe you know sweet music in England isn't the same as sweet music in India when they've got different instruments and different kind of musical repertoire. And we are still at the starting stages, but have already been able to show that a number of these sonic seasoning examples do work uh, cross-culture. We have taken... Uh, research from the lab in Oxford, passed it on to German sound designers who've made sweet, sour, bitter, salty tracks, then tested it in North America, over the internet, and in India, and find that both groups pretty much agree that, yes, that is a sweet track, that's the bitter one. So I think you can communicate cross-culturally. Um, that helps to broaden the appeal of this kind of approach. And very recently, we've been working in uh, Korea, in Japan, testing thousands of people at, at food events, science festivals, music events, uh, to really... Um, document the breadth and the universality of at least some of these associations. I'm sure not all of them will be universal, but a number of them are. And hence, of course, that's going to be of a great interest to um, uh, to those brands who are trying to communicate in different markets uh, through music and sound. I wanted to ask how seriously you take and what, what measures you take in order to prevent your events being sabotaged, not not even events, but like experiments and campaigns and uh, dining experience sabotaged by this sort of accidental, ignorant pollution that caused by various factors. 
that you essentially can't control. The title of my uh, last book was kind of Gastrophysics, um, uh, kind of combining gastronomy, nice food and drink experiences with the physics, which is psychophysics, which is a bit of psychology where you try and systematically study, present people with stimuli, normally on a computer, but we give people food and drinks and vary the stimuli and see how they respond, but very sort of parametric, well-controlled scientific stuff. And when we try and publish the results of our research, as most of it has been over the years, then we you know, very often run into the referees who are very critical of the approach and the methodology and always say, have you controlled for this? Did you check for that? Are you just biasing? Are your subjects just saying what, not even uh, polluting your results, but you know, saying what, what, what they think you want to hear? Is it like an experimenter expectancy effect and so on? Yeah, to avoid sort of confirmational bias, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and so I think those sort of biasing effects are powerful. And I think they are part of the total experience. Uh, you know, if, if we're doing a, uh, involved in a, an experiential event, we've got three thousand people coming. You don't want to, don't want them to walk away going, huh? What was that about? I didn't get it. You want them to experience something, uh, so you want to use everything at your your disposal to to make sure they do. And that is partly comes through the uh, the sounds, the lights, the shapes, and all the other tricks, sensory tricks you play. But also partly maybe by leading them in a, in in a certain way. And that creates the biggest impact on the experience, almost kind of mentalism, I suppose, uh, for those at the events. But at the same time, we try and do the very carefully controlled experiments in the lab, very often in soundproof booths, so that you can guarantee there's no distracting sound. It's just you there, uh, some headphones, some food, and uh, yeah, we, we carefully control it then to show even when all these other extraneous factors are taken out, there is kind of a ground truth uh, an association there and, and then hopefully by you know having combined both these large-scale experiential events where we can get you know thousand now we're getting or have been getting like one two three four thousand people taking part and the sheer scale of those kind of experiments then uh, with real people tasting real foods kind of outweighs the noise i think that that those situations uncontrolled situations might introduce and hence gives you a power that even the best controlled laboratory study where you can only afford or have time to test 10, 20, 30 people, can never get, because it's such a small sample. Um, but we always try and do both things together um, to please both the critics uh, who say your experiments aren't tightly controlled enough, but also those out in the real world who says, who cares what your subjects in your laboratory said? You know, how does this affect us in the real world? Would it really work in a noisy party, in a pop concert, uh, in a disco, or would it only work when you... I think many things work in, in, in both sorts of um, uh, uh, cases. Um, and for us, it's important that because sonic seasoning is such a surprising concept, that makes partly what makes it so fun to try and convince people. You know, here's something you never heard about, but it really works. What? You're talking rubbish. I don't believe it. Come on, try me. Um, uh, and to try and convince people of this phenomenon that is surprising to them and that remains surprising. Uh, that's fun and the challenge of doing research in this area. We're not just proving what you already knew, which people have said in hindsight about the sound of the sea. That's obvious. Of course, it was going to work when it never was going to work beforehand. And the music, uh, sonic seasoning uh, is something that you know, people remain sceptical, surprised by. And hence, uh, we can, I, I, I've realised over the years, is we can do as many experiments as you like, publish them in the best scientific journals, show the graphs and the significance. But if you just read about it, most people don't read scientific journals, and even if you did, if it doesn't fit your intuition, you kind of just will ignore it somehow. So it's almost like you have to experience it yourself to really believe it. 
And that's why these experiential events are so important to get hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people now in total to experience this and have them walking away going, wow, it was amazing. As soon as you change the music, the taste of my drink changed. And that doesn't feel like a bias or a, a suggestibility effect. These people, you know, their first person comments saying, yeah, that's amazing. And, um, and, and then those people who've experienced things like this, and we saw this first with the Singleton Sensorium in 2013, where we had 500 people over three nights in Soho with a glass of whiskey and different multisensory environments with sweet music and, and, and semantically meaningful music. Um, those who went there, who really enjoyed their whiskey in one of the three rooms, then went away to their bars, to their restaurants, and started changing the way they served the same drink in their own because they realised then the power, but it, that that came through experience, not through lecturing or statistics or graphs or papers. Speaking of tasting and experiencing, what's the most accessible way for anybody to go and try any of these um, food experiences with sonic seasoning in, in any kind of context, uh, in action in the UK or around the world, or perhaps uh, even attempt a very own experiment at home if it's possible? So... There are and continue to be a number of these sort of uh, pop-up experiential events, experiments going on in different parts of the world. But of course, most of us can't get to London for those three days to, uh, and, and during COVID, I guess none of them are going on anyway. Um, so uh, for those who, who don't have access to that, then uh, many of these sonic seasoning tracks are now available over the internet. I know I can probably dig out the link a little bit later for um, whatever um, SoundCloud. I think we've got like 27 examples of um, sonic seasoning on there that just come in a random order, so you can try some of those. Um, and I think probably if you just type sonic seasoning into a uh, web browser, I'd hope now a number of examples would just pop up. I haven't checked that. It's true. It must be true by now. So to, to, to then um, yeah, listen to the music. Um, and uh, get some food at home or get some friends and just try it yourself. Bitter. Sweet. Sour. Spicy.
I say the thing is, I think over experience, I, my sense is that we cannot turn water into wine by music. The taste has to be there in the thing you're having. And probably the more complex the taste, the better. So like chocolate and coffee are good because they're kind of complex. Wine is excellent um, because there's so much going on that our brains can't really keep track of all the tastes and aromas. And hence, that's a good place where you can use music to direct your attention to this note, to that note, to that. Whereas if I give you something simple, like I guess maybe Coke, I'm guessing it might be harder to use sonic seasoning because I know what Coke tastes like. It doesn't have any nuances, really. You get it all at once. I'm being very disrespectful here, but you know, you kind of get, it's just like a simple, uniform taste experience. There's nothing complex, interesting, changing. And under those situations, sonic seasoning might still work, but my guess it will be less dramatic than in the more um, complex cases. Uh, and beyond that, you know, we've worked now with, uh, uh, I forget his name, German DJ, and uh, it was a couple of years ago for a project with one of those um, table booking services. We told him, okay, uh, they sort of selected 10 restaurants of different styles uh, and menus from those restaurants in London, and there's going to be chocolate dishes and fish dishes and this and that. Uh, and we went away and said, okay, these are the sorts of sound qualities that would go with the chocolate, with the fish, with a... So there's going to be a bit of the sound of the sea in there, a bit of sweet music, a bit of music for a bit of sweet chocolate and so on. Um, and then the DJ kind of went away to his uh, his record decks uh, and, and, and selected a whole range of, you know, kind of uh, uh, um, dance tracks that were appropriate. Uh, and I think got some really, sourced some really nice examples just that, you know, are out there already. Um, that I still kind of use to this day, of some of those Ibiza tunes, you know, um, uh, start off with the sound of the sea, so that references the seafood bit, and then morphs into a, uh, you know, a slow lounge track or something, and that fitted with some other part. <laughs> and that was kind of great. But the, just to illustrate the point that, while maybe the most very most powerful examples of sonic seasoning, I guess, ought to come from these specially curated tracks. In fact, you can pick music off the shelf, Uh and a lot of our work, you know, has been done with classical music to match different wines, flute, uh, flute concertos, clarinet concertos, very good for white wines. Beethoven late string quartets, very good for the for the uh, for, for, for the red wines and, and, and the Bordeaux. But if you don't like the classical music, then you know Mike Oldfield tubular bells has got some great stuff in there. Tinkling wind chimes that are perfect for a sweet taste. And somebody else, you know, Pavarotti, but a Nessandorma or you know, slaves chorus from. One of those other operas is great for bitter notes. So those things are out there. And it's kind of almost fun to kind of search and say, okay, you know, from my the music I like to listen to, uh, I'm going to pick something that has the right sort of qualities. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'd like to talk about a couple of more case studies specifically, because uh, as a big whiskey lover, I must ask you about the Singleton's uh, Centaurium experience. Besides, it's a fantastic example how the drink brand can utilize the science of sound for their product marketing. Can you tell us a little bit more about how it went on? So this was back in 2013, and with, together with Diageo's uh, The Singleton, wanted to, uh, they heard a bit about Sonic Seasoning and wanted to uh, develop sort of an experiential event to expose consumers uh, to the product, to the brand, uh, but not do it in a traditional kind of whiskey tasting, you know, snooty, formal, stiff sort of setting, um, but it's something a bit more interactive, a bit more engaging, a bit more experiential. And so together with um, a, a sound design agency, later morphing into a multi-sensory creative agency, um, Condiment Junkie, sadly closed down last year, I think, uh, uh, we worked with them and a perfume maker um, 
and in a uh, old gunmaker's studio in Soho in London, I think in November, or in the dark winter months at least of 2013, maybe it was in the beginning of 2013, um, brought 500 people in over three nights. Um, and this was kind of a, to try and show how the environment, how sound, how lighting and smells can change the taste of the whiskey. Um, and I think initially it was just sort of thought of as a, a kind of a, a way to expose consumers to the brand. It wasn't thought about in any other light than that. And certainly, you know, the formal testing of whiskies tends to go on with lots of crusty old men, I think, somewhere up in Scotland, uh, who've been testing, you know, uh, rating the whiskey and the blends for, for, for decades and know exactly what this brand should taste like. Very formal, very stiff. Uh, and so this idea of, you know, asking the non-expert, the general public, what do you think the whiskey tastes like? How much do you enjoy the whiskey right now? That's kind of anathema, asking the regular whiskey drinker what they think. They don't have the, they don't have the educated palate. But anyway, we got the approval for the event uh, and we were brought in to help design the experimental part. Um, and over those three nights, um, brought in over five, about 500 people in total. Um, we gave everyone a glass of, of the Singleton, a scorecard, like a little postcard size, a bit larger than that piece of paper, uh, and a pencil, uh, and then took them through three rooms. Um, in, and in each room, they had to rate the nose of the whiskey, the taste of the whiskey, how sweet it was. Uh, the aftertaste, kind of the, what it felt like on the palate, how much they, they liked the environment they were in, in that room, and how much they liked the whiskey right then. So five questions. When we were planning this, I was saying, well, you know, we really need to give them a different glass of whiskey in each room, because if we don't, and they're carrying the whiskey around with them for the 15 minutes of the experience, they'll know it's the same whiskey. So it's like, how can the whiskey change its taste? Because I know it's it hasn't left my hand, it must be the same thing. But because of, you know, just the way things these things are organised, having that many whiskey glasses wasn't practical. So he said, no, we'll have to give them, let them keep the whiskey glass throughout. And ultimately that decision, I think, turned out to be a real powerful aspect of the experience, both for that and many subsequent sensorium, sensploration type uh, tasting events. Because by holding the glass in your hand, you knew that when you came out of the experience and you could see your scorecard and see you said different things about the whiskey in those three rooms the woody, the sweet, and the um, grassy rooms, then you can say, well, yeah, I know they haven't been messing with my whiskey because I've kept hold of it, and yet I can see I said different things about the whiskey, and this sort of captures then, in a way, the Provencal rosé moment, the fact that things do taste different to us when we're on holiday versus at home, um, and there we had um, used both uh, sonic seasoning in the sense of musical uh, but also kind of atmospheric or semantic sounds. So in the in, this, in the grass room that people started in, there we had uh, deck chairs, croquet hoops, um, grass on the floor, green lighting, some plants, uh, and the sound of the English summer birds tweeting, lawn mowers, sheep buying, that sort of thing. Um, and then in the uh, sweet room, where they went second, everything was round, everything was pink and purple and red because those are the colours and shapes of sweetness. We had tinkling high-pitched wind chimes coming from the ceiling because that's the sound of sweetness. So that was a more sonic seasoning bit. And then finally in the woody room, um, we had stressed wood on the walls and the floor, dead tree, lots of clocks and the sound uh, from Condiment Junkie of creaking wood doors, of log fires crackling, of double bass wood instruments, everything woody, kind of semantic you could think of. And amazingly, when people came out, uh, when we analysed the results of those 500 people, uh, they said, quite different things on average about the taste, about the texture, about the mouthfeel, about the smell, the aroma uh, of the whiskey in the rooms. Um, and for many, they enjoyed it most in the woody room. 
and that's maybe you can see uh, if one goes forward. And last time I was at, last few times I've been at Glasgow Airport, uh, the business lounge there, a British Airways one. They have like a little whiskey bar in the corner, uh, and in there, then they have the sound of the wood fire crackling. They have like a video projection of that, almost as an acknowledgement of the importance of these atmospheric cues, both the sounds but also perhaps congruent visuals and smells. And for us, yeah, we, we ended up doing the experiment, publishing the results. Um, and at that point, then kind of the things sort of the brand ambassadors and those in charge suddenly realised this is sort of powerful stuff. It's more than just a way of engaging consumers with our brand. It may provide us actually with some useful information and ways to deliver better, more differentiated multisensory experiences to our consumers uh, than we can just by concentrating slowly on the contents of the bottle. Um, uh, and that sort of has fed in, I think, um, to practice. And, uh, and when the next year we did a 3,000-piece a wine tasting with Campo Viejo in London, there when the winemakers from the cellars came over to try out the experience before those 3,000 people rocked up, they were sort of blown away and said, oh, right, you know, as soon as we get back to, to Spain, we've got to make sure that our cellar door experience captures a bit of this because really... When you change the lighting, when you change the music, it really does change the taste. We never really thought about that before. Uh, that was always like a distracting variable. Ignore it, try and keep everything constant. Now we see it can be integrated into the experience. It does affect us. And if handled correctly, it can really you know, make for a, a more en engaging, a more enjoyable, more experiential kind of event. And one where I think, importantly, it's sort of left for the public, for the punters, for the whiskey lovers, for the wine lovers out there, uh, to have the experience and, and then to to make their own sense of it. So it's like using the experiential stuff, but to give people a, a space to play mentally, to explore their senses, hence the sense-exploration um, element, uh, rather than perhaps what we've seen in, in previous decades when stores and brands have tried to play, you know, in the supermarket if they... Or in the restaurant, they play jungle sounds and, and have a thunderstorm in the, in the vegetable aisle in, in, in the supermarket. Then there, it's not. It's trying to use the senses to manipulate us. The answers know what should happen. And that's very different from these experiential events where it's much more, sometimes we don't even know what's happening. Very often, you, the punter, are adding to our knowledge by taking part in an experiment that's also an experience. You might get it, you might not. But it's sort of giving the, the, the people that sort of freedom to explore their senses, to be surprised by their senses. That is, I think, key uh, differentiator on what people seem to be very hungry for and interested in, to find out more about how their senses are connected and how that can be used then uh, by brands, but also by themselves to uh, modify uh, the way they experience. I have a question um, that is perhaps of a more metaphysical nature. What instruments and what methods do you use to measure and analyze the data you capture that is coming out of these experiments? And I mean both in the lab at the university, but also kind of in the field whilst working with brands and at the events. There's been a lot of interest in recent years from brands and elsewhere in the marketplace around sort of neuromarketing, using all the latest techniques of brain scanning and eye tracking um, to try and understand, you know, where the buy button is and how to activate it better. I'm sort of sceptical of those approaches uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and I much rather want to study uh, behaviour. I'm influenced by it. I try and learn from what those brain scanning, neuroimaging studies do. But I don't really think they help answer the questions that I'm interested in. So we try to use sort of you know, simple techniques where possible. 
Um, that can be used anywhere by anyone, by, you know, uh, in countries that don't have brain scanners, by little small producers. So quite often it's just sort of uh, questionnaires, very often, in fact, that might look like standard questionnaires, but hopefully we're inspired a bit by the science. Um, and the way that projects will normally go is that we'll probably start in the lab uh, and say if we're interested in, as we were recently, spiciness. Could I make something taste spicier and hotter to you? What is the sound of spicy? Uh, no one's ever looked at that before. Uh, we started out by getting people to imagine spicy foods in the lab or online, tens or hundreds of them, giving them like a virtual um, music system or keyboard and say, okay, uh, just play yourself some sounds here. Um, if you move that dial, you can make the sound higher or lower in pitch. If you click over here, you can have you know piano sounds or brass or wind or string. Um, uh, here's another scale for roughness for if you want major or minor mode. So give people various options and say, okay, just imagine or actually taste something spicy. Play with this sound deck until you find the sound that matches. Sort of sounds silly, but just do it. Um, and then if you ask 10, 20, 100 people, you'll find that they are sort of systematic in their response. People nearly always pick a lower pitch sound for bitter than for sweet. Uh, pianos, as I said, for sweet, whereas uh, brass for the for the um, uh, bitter. Uh, once we've got that data, if it's in person, when people are actually tasting in the lab, it'll probably be 30 or 40 people we test. If we do it online, so that we can ask people in different countries, then we have to use tastes or flavors they can easily imagine, because uh, they can't literally taste anything online. Um, but then we can test hundreds or maybe thousands of people to see what associations they have. And that gives us the basics, almost the musical um, uh, menu for uh, whatever spiciness in this case. Uh, then those results will be taken and we'll try and work with or be told to work with a sound designer or an agency or a composer. Uh, we did a lot of work with um, uh, Steve Keller in, in, uh, from IV Audio Branding over in the States. Uh, uh, on the Spiciness Project, for example, and he took our insights and created a composition uh, that is pleasant to listen to, but captures those musical menu elements. Uh, and then we took his creation, played it to people in the lab when they were tasting, said, yes, it can affect spiciness of a dish, and then did it in a restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, Etch, uh, with Chef Deb Paquet at her diners in her restaurant, eating a moderately spicy mango salad, either with the spicy soundtrack or with nothing or something else, and showed it, yes, in that real-world environment, um, uh, the uh, spiciness was enhanced. But that's a good thing, kind of depends if you like spicy food or not, uh, but that it was significantly changed. Um, uh, and people often say, well, I mean, how can you tell? I mean, because I like spicy and, and, and somebody else doesn't, and, um, and, and, and they can't taste anything at all. They've got no taste buds. So how do you, how, how do you get meaningful results when individuals are so different, one from the next, what they like and what they can taste? Um, and I'd say for this that we uh, we don't really care about what you think absolutely about the taste of something. All we care about is your kind of relative judgment that you think a sweet taste is higher in pitch than a bitter taste. That's all we need to know. We don't need to know exactly what frequency you think sweet is. That might be constant, but maybe if it, even if it isn't, we're interested in these sort of relative judgments. And hence, by doing that within each individual, that allows us not to worry about individual differences, if you have a sweet tooth or not, if you like this taste or not. Um, and uh, yeah, that's sort of how, how it goes. Uh, and then if we're lucky, sometimes the 
tracks that have been created. Sometimes we can iterate and say, okay, those are great tracks, but we did a project with um, Corvoisier a few years ago uh, and had like six really nice projects actually where uh, people got a smell kit, that sort of premium customers got a smell kit with six vials of different key aromas in uh, cognac, uh, coffee, roast coffee, ginger biscuits, candied orange, violet, and I forget what the other one were. Uh, and then we made compositions, or compositions were made to match each of those aroma notes, uh, the candied orange, the coffee, the ginger biscuits. Um, and people at home were then supposed to smell the key aroma, listen to the matching track and say, oh, yes, when I hear the harp, that does match candied orange. Uh, and then eventually you were to have a, a glass of, of the cognac and, and that composition had been made that incorporated all of the elements. It had the sound of the ginger biscuits. It had the sound of the harp. It had the sound of the uh, coffee and the um, violet. And, and then hopefully by doing that, you could get more out of the tasting experience because each taste that you can't articulate had been paired with an instrument that you could hear. Um, and in that case, when we were doing the testing for that, it turned out that the first attempts at, I think, the, you know, the, um, the, the candied orange, people thought that sounded more like a ginger biscuit than <laughs> candied orange. So that kind of went back and, uh, and was iterated. And that's not always possible, as I say. Uh, um, but I think in those, when we get to the large-scale events, if we are collecting data, then we have to accept it's probably going to be noisier the environment, you can't control everything. Uh, but the more people, the better. Uh, mostly done with scorecards. People try doing it, you know, with your respond on your mobile device. And occasionally that works and gives you real-time feedback. But whenever I see it, the bandwidth's not up to it. The technology fails. So I prefer old-school pencil and paper. And uh, I, I make sure that the questions you ask in those real-world situations are kind of simple ones, I think. Um, and we'll have people both rating, okay, how fruity or fresh is the wine? How grassy on the nose is the whiskey in the Singleton case? Simple questions. Um, give them a scale, probably, to respond on. Uh, and that gives us our one lot of data. And then what was surprising to me, very often as a psychologist these days, you don't really ask people, what do you think? What was it all about? What was going on? If you ask people you know, what they think, they give you all sorts of answers about who knows what. Go off script. So best not to ask them, give them that freedom of choice. Only ask them how sweet it was. And then you can only get answers that are meaningful. But in the uh, uh, in the Color Lab event with three thousand people in London in twenty fourteen, and Campo Viejo, they had a little box in the score sheet saying, "Just tell us about the experience." Uh, just because there's a bit of spare space, so why not? And that turned out to be one of the really powerful results. Actually, those first person reports saying, "You know, wow!" As soon as you change the lighting, the taste changed. As soon as the music switched, I thought I was drinking a different wine. Oh my god! I couldn't believe how much. Uh, and those, I think, are really powerful kind of data as well um, that we have used since. And that, that I think, you know, those, uh, as well as collecting data for scientific papers, and the Singleton Sensorium has been published in a peer-reviewed academic journal, and the Campo Vio one has, and many other events. Um, but, but just, you know, allowing a greater number of people to really experience this for themselves, I think, is, you know, the only way and the ultimate way in which to spread the word, spread the message, and get more people interested, excited, wanting to explore, experience and maybe create sonic seasoning for themselves. ASMR has become a huge phenomenon over recent years. You did a study with an intriguing title, I'm going to quote, Extraordinary Emotional Responses Elicited by Auditory Stimuli Linked to the Consumption of Food and Drink. There were some interesting findings. Can you tell us more? 
Yeah, so this is um, uh, when people ask you sort of what's next in the world of Sonic seasoning. Then I think, you know, Sonic seasoning is amazing. It's sort of fantastic. It's surprising. Um, but because we're framing it, it's always just making things taste sweeter or more bitter. It's all sort of modulating an everyday experience in a way. I mean, it's surprising and amazing, but still it's just a bit sweeter than it was before. It's a bit more fruity. Um, so in recent years, we've been trying to think about what can you, can you deliver extraordinary tasting experiences through sound manipulations. Uh, and those extraordinary experiences might be around illusions or around magic or around, uh, you know, the fact that people are brought to tears by the sound of the sea. Seafood dish, I would call an extraordinary response because normally seafood does not make us cry. Yet with the soundscape of the sea and some earbuds, suddenly many people do cry. Um, and I think ASMR fits in there as, a, as, a, as one of these ex potentially extraordinary experiences. ASMR, for those who do not know, the autonomous sensory meridian response. It's kind of the neck shiver that many people get when somebody whispers and crinkles paper uh, and does things like that. Um, and there's a whole huge number of on people online who listen to ASMR content, especially when before they go to bed. It helps them to relax, they have the neck shiver, um, and then they sleep more easily, apparently. Uh, a few brands have, have tried to get into this space. There's a, a Japanese chocolate brand, Dove, I think it did a few years ago. Maybe Aldi or Lidl, I think, even tried it. Or Ikea, one of those. Um, but this is sort of a powerful response that seems to be primarily triggered by sounds, specific sorts of sounds. Uh, we thought, could we trigger, could we combine that ASMR response shiver, um, which is positively valence, people like it when they have it, uh, with uh, a brand with a drinking experience, and in this case it was with Glen Morangi whiskey, uh, and to try and uh, uh, develop something for their kind of online platform, we first uh, interviewed uh, a large number of ASMRers, asked them, what does it for you? I think about probably about maybe a, a third of people get this neck shiver. Some people don't at all, but those who do, we asked them, what is it? Is it loud sounds or quiet sounds, high-pitched sounds? Is it near sounds, far sounds? Is it textured sounds? What is it? Um, and they came back, well, you know, we like this, we like that. Whatever you do, don't do that. Don't make it overly scripted. Um, there's obviously a lot of talking, you know, whispering and, and crinkling sounds. And they said that does work for us. But what they also said is sort of textured and even low-pitched sounds could trigger ASMR in them. So we took those results uh, and then passed them on, in this case, to sort of um, video artists, uh, three different uh, video artists or studios, uh, I think all in France that happened. At least one of them was in France. Uh, Studio Cressy was one I remember the name of. Uh, and they took the findings and then each made like a, a four or five minute video uh, that incorporated sounds with those triggers, but was also linked to the brand, to Scotland, to whiskey, to, to wood and heather and so on. Kind of abstract images, videos, a lot of close-up of wood and barrels slowly going past with lots of textured sounds. And the idea was that people then would listen to these uh, and watch these short videos at home with the over-ear headphones to get the best ASMR effect uh, with a glass of uh, the Glen Morangi and uh, hopefully have an extraordinary tasting experience that was delivered primarily then through uh, an innovative use of sound. And this was from 2017, I think it, it launched, but it did turn out to be uh, Glen Morangi's most successful digital marketing campaign ever. Um, and just to sort of see some of the people who, who are enjoying it and experiencing their whiskies differently uh, was really powerful uh, to see uh, and a kind of great example of how I think you know, creative arts, be they sort of sound design, also the video, um, can, be, can be linked to our emerging scientific understanding in a way that can create 
content that can not just modulate our tasting experiences, both what we think we taste and how much we enjoy it, but actually start to deliver extraordinary ones that I think is, you know, really exciting and challenge for the future. Uh, and where we've gone so far with the ASMR then, which I think what other kind of extraordinary responses are out there. And for me, it has a, sort of a particular personal res- resonance because, you know, my very first interest in sonic seasoning really was at an undergraduate reading a paper from 1960s that everyone had forgotten about that accidentally came across in a journal by Kristen Holt Hansen, who gave people a tone generator, a can of beer, Carlsberg regular or elephant uh, lager, and said, you know, adjust the pitch of the tone generator until you find the pitch of harmony. Uh, and it turns out the more alcoholic elephant export lager is matched with a higher pitch sound uh, than regular Carlsberg. Uh, and then when he takes some new people and plays back that pitch of harmony, so this is like sonic seasoning, you know, four decades ago, half a century ago, then people say, wow, I had this, you know, amazing response. My, my neck started shivering. I felt like my head was expanding. Here it was, an extraordinary tasting experience, nothing more than a tone generator and a kind of lager. Uh, forgotten about because people thought it was so bizarre, it just couldn't be true. Is that the 60s? Is that, you know, drugs and stuff? What was going on? You know, or just don't ask people what they think, because if you do, you get this weird stuff out. And now, half a century later, we see ASMR becoming a real thing. Surely it must always have been there, but no one ever thought about it, no one ever categorised it. A bit like synesthesia, some strange shit that, that we don't know why it's there and just ignore it, but now is becoming better known, better studied, and hence potentially better incorporated into you know, multimedia, multisensory experiences, uh, very often with food and drink, and very often you know, delivered uh, not just in the fancy restaurants, like the sound of the sea at the Fat Duck, but in the home environment with you and your mobile device, your smart technology that's sitting there, and that can be incorporated into, I think, you know, immersive, experiential, for me, hopefully experimental, multisensory tasting experiences that are unlike anything you've had before. I love that example of a can of lager and a tone generator uh, back in the 60s. I think that says it all. It's really powerful, isn't it? <laughs> for a moment, I would like to come back to music because I think it's uh, still one of those um, mm-hmm. uh, lower-hanging fruits in the world of sonic branding and um, sonic seasoning. In some way, paints an even more complex picture as it not only carries the sound frequency spectra that was sort of uh, has various effects onto our perception of taste, as you already alluded earlier, and texture and so on, but also cultural annotations. And no doubt that a lot of people would associate classical music with quality, longevity, and perhaps even affluence. Uh, therefore, there's no surprise we prefer or more likely to hear Vivaldi in the kind of uh, Michelin-style restaurant uh, than any other type of music. I'm curious to know, what's your general view uh, in terms of relationship between music and gastronomics? And a bonus question, how many critical parameters are at play here and what's irrelevant? For instance, pace, timbre, loudness, genre, age, uh, anything else, maybe even perhaps ethnic congruency as well. are these all the things we need to worry about? Uh, if you worry too much, you probably never get anything done. <laughs> so I think there's various factors um, probably all do play a role. Um, certainly the ethnicity of the music um, or, or what we presume the ethnicity of the music to be biases our choices. And this is you know, marketing research for the last half century in supermarkets, in wine caves, in restaurants, both biasing what we choose to buy, uh, but also uh, perhaps what it tastes like. 
the food tastes more authentic with the uh, ethnically appropriate music in the background. So I think that goes on. Uh, you mentioned the classical music, and that's you know one of the best ways I always say to many clients to you know increase the spend is to play classical music. And it's been shown in student cafeterias, in African themed restaurants, in wine shops that, uh, to, to make you spend more because it primes these notions of uh, how does it do so? Is it? I guess it's through associative learning again. We learn that this kind of music tends to occur in that kind of place. Uh, and we learn those associations and hence uh, they bias our expectations. When we again hear classical music, having always heard it in an expensive store in a fancy restaurant, we think this must be a fancy restaurant too, because that's what they do in this kind of place. So I think of these different, uh, and that exists, the ethnic effect exists, the classical associations and the priming exists, as well as the sonic seasoning, as well as the atmospheric sounds of the sea or whatever else it might be, uh, as well as uh, effects of tempo on, on, on how you know, we kind of entrain ourselves to the musical beat, be that in the walking down the supermarket, be it drinking our beer, being it bringing our fork to our, ma- our, our, our mouth in the restaurant. So a lot of complex stuff going on. Uh, and of course you can extract, isolate some of that, just focus on pitch and say, what does that do? And if I say a high pitch sound is sweeter than a bitter sound, there's no ethnic component there, there's no classical element. So I think you know, you, while it does seem bewilderingly complex, I think you can analyze these things uh, separately, that many of them do have an impact. Um, and that for us, you know, we have been I'm sort of interested going back in the history of music, both to uh, think about Tafel music, what was that in the 1700s in Germany, that music was composed specifically to be listened to while you're eating. Uh, so there is a history of eating and, 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 and listening at the same time. Uh, uh, through, we did some work trying to say, could we, if we gave you a glass of wine, could we make it seem more vintage, older, simply by playing old music, whatever that is. Uh, we've been thinking a lot about temperature, uh, trying to bias your perception of the temperature of a drink. Uh, we can do that by changing the sound, the pouring sound, because hot liquids sound different than cold liquids. So we've done all that. But then looking in terms of classical music uh, for kind of a, an association uh, that maybe is there somehow in the environment, even that, you know, I guess in hot countries, you move differently than in cold countries. Sound is heard differently depending on the atmospheric conditions. Do those sort of natural environmental factors then play out in the sort of music that's created? And if you understand that, can you then make, create compositions uh, that, that, that you know, convey a temperature, convey an age? Um, and do it from the, almost from the bottom up, sort of first principles. And I think you can get some way to doing that, which is sort of an exciting part of our... our, our um, uh, work at uh, present uh, through you know, thinking about even that uh, dolce. I'm not a musician myself, but that term is used in musical scores. Why is the word sweet used to describe music? Is the fact that you know we we all in most parts of the world, regardless of language, will describe a a sound with um, a higher frequency as high pitched and low. It's not literally high. But already there's a, that matching. And so, you know, is how does that, there's almost a correspondence there, so high in pitch. So if I know a high-pitched sound is sweet, then if I ask you where in space would you say a sweet taste comes from, is it any surprise you also say high, whereas bitter things come down? Um, and then maybe that's because sweet things grow higher above the earth, whereas bitter things tend to be ground or below. 
Uh, and it's also, you know, uh, post hoc, just so stories, speculation, a bit like the, the sounds that babies make with bitter and sweet tastes. But I think it does raise some provocative questions that are worth pursuing for fun, and maybe they'll turn out to be true. Um, uh, and that, you know, the sort of cultural element and, um, is definitely important. And, and, and what we're doing today in terms of trying to match sounds with uh, tastes and flavours uh, both has its its antecedents in tafel music, perhaps. When Bach did his coffee cantata, other sounds and instruments he chose for his cafe cantata, matching what we think coffee should taste like today? Question mark. Um, uh, uh, through to all the old work, you know, of, of the 1800s, 1700s, uh, of sort of sound organs and colour organs, where colours would be matched to sounds. And for us, that question of, you know, matching tastes to sounds or matching colours to sounds. That's two versions of the same question. Uh, and that colour organs were so phenomenally um, popular a century ago with Arthur Remington and the like uh, in London, you know, giving massive concerts. Uh, maybe there are insights there. And maybe it hints at a over-history across culture uh, an interest in the surprising connections between our senses. And what's different today is just that those connections are being probed in the world of taste and flavour, perhaps elevating tasting and food to an art form, as some chefs would have it be, whereas traditionally we've only ever thought of arts as things you look at or listen to. But why can't you taste them? And if you can, why can't we engage in all sorts of the same sorts of playful, creative uh, design questions and exploration that have been done in the past with coloured music? And think about it as, as you know, as uh, as um, tasty sounds or sonic seasoning. I think it's a perfect segue to the mysterious topic of synesthesia. Perhaps it's very unique experience, and it is in many ways to most people. But um, I'm curious to hear whether or not you've managed to deploy the knowledge of synesthesia um, within kind of auditory context, and have you successfully deployed synesthetic effects combining sound with gastronomics and branding? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, I have a, uh, a love-hate relationship with synesthesia, <laughs> probably more on the hate side than the love. Uh, and yet uh, it's clearly a term, a concept, an idea, a notion that resonates with people. Everyone loves to hear about synesthesia. And it's clear that over the centuries, synesthesia has provided a impetus for creative artists Poets, novelists, writers, musicians, composers, Scribbins, the Kandinskys, the Nabokovs, um, uh, and so on, uh, to try and create differently, create more. Uh, I've just been re- writing a lot recently about um, Alexander Scribin, the Russian composer, uh, and his Prometheus poem of fire from 1911. And he wanted his musical work to be accompanied by a light show. He was probably a synesthete. He saw colours, uh, coloured music, as many early composers said that they did. Um, and he wanted to use that in order to create this, you know, total experience, total work of art that you don't just hear, that you also see. He even talked about adding, you know, matching fragrances as well, that he never quite got to do that. And there are many artists like that. that um, but none of these, these things ever came to pass. There have been a few... Uh, coloured performances of Scribin's work over the years, but they never caught on with the masses. And I think the problem with that and any other attempt to use synesthesia, again, surprising connection between the senses, 
um, such as coloured numbers and coloured days of the week and, and, and you know, tastes that have sounds. Um, the problem is that synesthesia, by definition, is, is a rare condition. Only a very small percentage of the population have it. And those who do have it, the real key thing is their synesthesia is idiosyncratic. It's different from one synesthete to the next. So that one synesthete might say A is red for him. The next person says, no, it's green for me. The third person says, no, I see it as orange yellow. They're all having their own true experience. They are all seeing colours when only listening to sound, say, or thinking about days. And yet the fact that each synesthete's experience is different, is idiosyncratic, that is a fundamental problem to anyone who wants to design a meaningful, shareable experience for the masses. And it sort of mystifies me for why and for, for how many centuries now synesthetes' experiences have been used as an impetus for design. In all these arts, it never come, it's never worked. I think the reason is because it's been based on idiosyncratic matches. And this is why what's happened over the last decade or so is so importantly different, that these correspondences we all share, that sweet is round, that pink is sweet, uh, these are shared amongst us. Um, they're surprising, like synesthesia is, but they're unlike synesthesia in that they are shared, that they're consensual, and it's that consensuality that really provides the power to create experiences that can be shared, that are meaningful. There is no right answer here because sweet isn't literally round, but if I know that nine out of ten people will agree with me on that point, then I can create meaningful content. Um, so often I'll say you know, sonic seasoning is like a kind of synesthesia, uh, but you know, synesthesia like I'll say rather than being an example of synesthesia. Uh, and when we did a, a dining event with a chef Joseph Yusuf in London um, about 2015, he wanted to showcase these surprising connections uh, through a nine-course tasting menu, uh, and he had to choose what to call it. And in the end, he called it synesthesia, a dining experience, not cross-modal correspondences, a dining experience. Uh, just because I think you know the public, the press, they're all interested in synesthesia. They know what it is, even if they don't realise the limitation when trying to apply synesthesia uh, to, to the design process. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really excited now to, to both try and keep these things differentiated, although I'm still battling with many of my academic colleagues who say, no, it's all synesthesia, we're all synesthetes. Um, but then also to, to show the power of this surprising correspondences that we all share in design, be it in the design of sound, sonic seasoning, but be it in the design of plateware to match the taste, be it in the design of colours and shapes and textures to, to change all sorts of things. But it opens up a huge world of possibility because everything's probably connected to some degree, lesser or greater. So how then can you study those connections, uh, document them, uh, and then feed them into a design process that will hopefully be experienced and hence appreciated by uh, the masses? When you joined academia in the 80s, traditionally science used to look at the senses separately. So now, decades later, that has changed. And now the field employs um, a more and more kind of holistic cross-modal approach in general. How much have we learned over the years because of that? And how much further and deeper, in your opinion, this can go? So you're right. When, when I started, you know, uh, I give the example. Um, in my new book, uh, Sense Hacking, which is coming out in, in January, I start, start, start the book with the example when I started as an academic in Oxford in the eight, uh, 80s um, and teaching in, in, in the 90s properly as a, a professor there, how um, uh, I arrived and, uh, and the lab had one person who studied vision uh, and next door was the lab of the person who studied hearing. 
and these two sensory scientists hadn't spoken to each other for two decades, and it was like they didn't think they'd look, they were missing anything by not communicating. Because if you study the eye, if I study vision, what relevance has that got to do with somebody who is interested in the ear and in hearing? And that has, has, has really changed over the last quarter century uh, as more and more examples of just how connected our senses are have emerged. Uh, and now some people would say, you know, all the brain is multisensory. There are a few things that aren't influenced by what's going on in the other senses. Uh, and those many, many studies in many countries, in many labs, um, are doc- increasingly documenting the rules that are used by the brain to combine the senses. And that's great. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I think we, we know more and more than ever before. We can now better model it um, and we can more effectively think about, you know, if we're trying to design a surveillance system, say, to, to stop the next terrorist attack, is it better to combine a, a microphone and video? Are two senses better than one? Uh, are robots work better if they are multisensory? I'm making good progress there, I think. So that's all great to see. And yet that research, I guess, probably doesn't make it out so much into our everyday experience. We don't, we're not aware that that knowledge is there, nor how necessarily it's being used. And I think for me, I mean, the sort of focus on these correspondences, these almost synesthetic connections is, I want to say, a bit, almost a bit more mystical, or at least it was if you go back to Swedenborg in the, in the, in the 1700s um, and other mystics, these sort of connections between pitches and sounds and colours and borderlairs, you know, correspondences, perfumes have colours and, 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 and sounds. This is all sort of more mystical, almost getting like a deeper truth of the universe. Why do we think these things are similar? Um, and so at one level, I'm, I'm very excited and happy to see how much far science has come in helping to explain the way we combine senses and how that influences us in terms of multisensory perception. But I also, I guess a bit of me sort of craves the mysterious, the unknown, uh, the things that can't be reduced to equations and numbers, the things that you know, remain surprising to us at their borders of what we can yet explain. Um, and I think of you know, these correspondences, these sort of strange matchings are, are, are that. And while many of them may ultimately be revealed to be nothing more than the statistical learning of what's going on in the environment, the kind of red ripe fruits example, or the high pitched babies gurgled. Um, I wonder if some of the things that we pick up in our experiments in the laboratory may turn out to, to, to hint at a, dre- a deeper meaning. Maybe not, but it's worth pursuing. A, 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 and just to think about these, you know, uh, the senses in the real world and how it is not. Yeah, it's maybe in some ways different from how the senses interact and studied in the lab. Uh, and let's give one example, I suppose, that a lot of our work is thinking about you know, the rules of how the senses combine, and if things are congruent, they combine more and give a bigger impact. Uh, so if I see a dog and I hear a dog, I get a bigger perceptual experience than if I see a dog and hear a cat, because that's incongruent. Uh, and our brain seems to want to bind things together from the different senses. But I've just published a paper on multisensory architecture and environments and atmospheres and they suddenly sort of think, well, maybe the brain doesn't want to combine the senses after all. Because when I'm, you know, in a real world in restaurant environment, a restaurant, an office, very often the music comes and it changes, but the visual environment stays the same. And that music I'm hearing, the classical music over the speakers in the in the restaurant, there is no musicians there. It's it's so it's kind of fundamentally incongruent with what I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah uh, incongruent, but at the same time, yeah, is it congruent? And uh, so, so do the same rules then apply when I'm thinking about integrating atmospheric environmental cues like the color of the lighting, the music in the background, uh, the temp- ambient temperature, 
as go on in the most scientifically studied case when I'm looking at you know, a thing, an object that has a, an appearance that makes a sound. And I'm not sure if, they, if it is or not, but um, yeah, partly where, where we're at currently in our thinking. Do you see immersive audio a big role to play in all this, uh, which can further enhance and elevate how we can perceive sonic stimuli, perhaps within the very similar context and examples we already talked about, but what's changed is just the, the format and the way we deploy playback, the way we perceive those sonic cues, musically speaking and sonic seasoning speaking, I guess it covers across the spectrum. Um, there's one could be one bit there about sort of um, responsive soundscapes, I suppose. Uh, a bit about sort of uh, maybe binaural and sort of spatialized um, soundscapes. Well, I've never nailed it properly. I, I sort of have this intuition that the sonic seasoning works best over headphones rather than over external speakers. I haven't actually done the experiment to prove it. I just have this intuitive feeling that it sort of works better if the sounds are coming from within your head where you're tasting. Um, and should work better. Uh, we have done bits. We've played a bit with uh, things like, you know, the virtual barbershop, uh, serving barbershop-themed cocktails years ago in um, Colbrook Row Cocktail Bar in London. So that was all fun and games. Um, and to the extent that the spatialized audio can maybe create a more immersive environment, and that's sort of what we're after. How have we try and do it? Uh, I guess that maybe the challenge for us is um, that requires perhaps more technology more development work that we do not have the expertise necessarily to design spatialized audio um, bespoke for particular applications. Um, uh, I am very interested in the spatiality of sound. A lot of our work, as I mentioned at the start, was around warning signals for car drivers. So I'm, I'm sort of very interested in how and part of our work there was with the Toyota cars on, on, on the space just behind your head, the space you never think about, the space you never see but the space that's hugely important for your brain because if an animal gets you by the back of the neck, that's curtains. So they're like the special bits in the brain that monitor just that near, rear, peripersonal space, we call it. Um, and we find that you know when we present warning signals just behind your head, they have a much more dramatic effect on you than the same sound placed anywhere else. So uh, uh, I'm sort of interested in that. And in some of our some dining events where we use sonic seasoning, we have sort of, you know, had people wandering around just behind the diners' heads at the table. I think that creates a very different sort of experience. So the spatiality is definitely of interest, but that sort of stayed, I guess, in the warning signal domain. I haven't really so much brought it into the into the food one, uh, except as, as by thinking that that I bet tastes and flavours also have a spatial position. I mentioned that maybe we found recently that sweet tastes are higher in pitch, but also higher in elevation. Bitter tastes are lower in pitch, but also lower in elevation. Um, I know are certain flavors behind us, others in front. Uh, we know that you know tastes can have speed. That you know lemons are fast, not slow. Prunes are very slow. So can can you illustrate that 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 speed through spatially moving things and sort of separately? Uh, I think I'm I, I um, being able to use more innovative, binaural, spatialized, responsive soundscapes. Um, that, that that for me gets into this question that's sort of starting to obsess me more about uh, what I call sort of sensorium and what's real and what's not. Uh, and a number of experiences I've had of say being in, uh, I'll give the example of being in a in a um, courtyard in a, in a hotel in the Caribbean in Cartagena, uh, 
and you have your cocktails, sun's going down, it's beautiful, uh, and sort of frogs are chirping. But then they start doing it too regularly that you think they're not actually the real frogs. It's probably a loudspeaker that's doing it, which is probably a Kantian notion of, you know, uh, is the man disappointed when he when he finds out that the beautiful nightingale singing is a mechanical toy, not the real thing. Um, but that's sort of, you know, real virtual uh, uh, distinction is something I want to sort of pursue more and explore and what changes when you know or you don't know or are misled or aren't. Um, you're more, I think you're going to be more likely to be misled as the sound reproduction becomes more spatialised and more responsive. Now, I may, I may actually, maybe the one thing I, want, I really want to do is, um, I've never quite got around to in that sort of space, as it were, is um, sort of work with, possibly with hyper-directional loudspeakers. So I've got, I've, got, I've got this sort of idea that we all intuitively have the belief that everyone in the space can hear the same thing. That's just the way that physics and sound works, isn't it? That maybe it's quieter or louder, but we're all hearing the same thing. So I can sort of imagine a, a, an event where, and, if I, and as soon as I put the headphones on you and say, okay, I'm going to play some music, you kind of know where the sound's coming from and maybe it becomes a personalised experience. But I really want to sort of create something where we have the two diners, say, at either side of the table, um, each with their own hyperdirectional loudspeaker, and they assume they're hearing the same thing, but I've got control to give them very different things. Uh, and what sort of experiences that could uh, 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 create. Maybe we could try it you know, with, with a sort of silent disco with different channels. We sort of played around with that a bit as well. But something around yeah, our, our beliefs around sounds and how they propagate and what sort of sound experiences are possible is, is one of my to-do things one, one day when we um, get the chance. <laughs> Back in the game post-COVID era. Uh, well, as we wrap up, Charles, can you give one piece of advice to our audience that really helped you in your career? Probably just uh, hard work. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, hard work and um, trying things out, experimenting. Um, I guess that would be my advice then, just, you know, we could all experiment. I'm an experimental psychologist, that's what I do as a profession. But whenever I go and speak to audiences, I say, you know, maybe you read that research that in your supermarket, if you play the uh, French music, everyone will buy French wine or the fast music and people will spend more. But that was done then, years ago, uh, in a different country with a different audience, with a different product. Uh, we should all, how do we know it's still true today? We should all be experimenting all the time. So whatever you're doing, whatever you're selling, um, uh, the best way forward, I think, is you know, to, to, to try and experiment continually, find out the evidence for yourself and to, to always sort of modify um, uh, and uh, yeah, that's what we've tried to do. I guess I've never done more experiments than anyone else, but uh, things like the sound of the sea would never have been done if we'd been sitting around thinking about what we should do. It's just we had 150 people coming, they paid some money for some food and experience, and the last minute they thought, okay, let's just play the sounds of the sea, and it worked. Um, but that's you know, endless experimentation. Uh, we found does throw up things that you would not have come up to if you'd, I suppose, thought about it too much or too long or if you'd relied on what others had said. Um, I think you know, experimenting is easier than... Uh, should, people shouldn't be afraid of it and should you know, grasp the um, for new knowledge and, and ways of thinking that it, that it presents. Brilliant, brilliant. And for those who would like to hear more about your fascinating work, what's the best way to get started? Um, so there is uh, a great short video uh, on sense exploration um, made by the Future of Storytelling 
Fost 2016. I think it's called Sensploration. Uh, it's about four and a half minutes, which is a great start. Uh, there's a nice uh, review in the New Yorker uh, as well. And uh, otherwise, a um, few talks online that people can register um, on YouTube and places. Some better than others. Some on food, some on car design, some on pain and pleasure. Um, but start there or contact me directly. I'm happy to send through any relevant material. In terms of books, sort of summarising some of this work, in 2017 I published Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating with Penguins. That's out all over the place as an audio book or e-book or um, hard or soft copy. Uh, and that's got everything on food and a lot of the stuff around uh, sonic design for, 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 for the uh, restaurants and bars and with brands. Um, and forthcoming in ooh, January... They tell me, or early 2021, also with Penguin, we have Sense Hacking, uh, which is my attempt to think about the senses and well-being, uh, which then we think a lot about, you know, the sounds, the sounds of nature, the sounds in the noise in the hospitals, uh, the sounds when you go shopping, uh, what music can do in the gym, uh, how playing the right tracks can make you look more attractive to to, to the other to the other sex, uh, and so on. So the, it's all about the senses in everyday life, and clearly sound is one of the easiest things to manipulate in our environments uh, plays a key role there uh, and impacts us um, in uh, you know the way that in gastrophysics is all about how sound affects us in food but I think you can place anything in, in place of the food uh, and sound has an equal if not greater impact there and that's coming 2021 and we'll make sure to include all the relevant links in the podcast show notes Charles thank you very much for your time it's been great to have you on podcast my pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the immersive audio podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Michelle Chan and included music by Inobs Bergamo. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.